You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams from a Blog to Watch with the Superlative Podcast. Uh, today I'm joined by a special guest, Mr. Mark Lewis Jones. Hey, Mark. Good evening, Ariel. How are you doing tonight? Good. So before this conversation, we talked a little bit about how to introduce you. And the reason I wanted to have you on the show is that this is a this is a program about sort of watch culture and everything from making watches to loving watches to, to, to designing watches to selling watches. And you have this amazing, interesting background in sales. You are you come from sort of a, a American um, European family. Um, you sort of got your formative years in watches in South America and the Caribbean. And now you help luxury brands enter elements of the South American market, like the Mexican market, which are notoriously very, very challenging for Europeans. And you're a consultant right now, and there's a lot of things you do, but you're, you're, you're smart and you understand this industry. And I know that in at least one episode, you're going to have some fun stories and things to say. So first of all, welcome and thank you for, for, for talking to me. It's a pleasure to be here, Ariel, and I hope I can uh, bring some light to uh, the watch industry and, and uh, its peculiarities in the Latin America and Caribbean regions. So let's first start with that. You obviously, you know, you're not Latin American yourself. So you, can, you have the advantage of looking from a third party perspective compared to other parts of the world, maybe to U.S., to Asia, to Europe. What makes the Latin American market different? And tell us about some of the regional differences, you know, Mexico versus Brazil uh, versus, you know, there's many other markets there, Colombia. Explain a little bit about what other people around the world need to know about Latin American fine watch love and and collection and everything. Okay. Well, I I don't want to say that, you know, here in this region, we're a little bit behind the rest of the world, but uh, Mexico, for example, is a huge opportunity market. It's a country of 130 million people that borders on the southern border of the United States of America. So there's uh, some influence there with that. But uh, Mexico has a very large and noble market. Uh, what's really interesting about it, unlike other markets, is that it does not depend on travel, retail, and tourism uh, for its success. That is to say, it's a market unto itself. And you have a pretty broad cross-section uh, of, of, of watch enthusiasts across all ages. I'll, I'll dip into that in just a second to give you some, some demographics uh, from this year's uh, CR uh, Watch Expo, which just happened last week here in Mexico City at the St. Regis. But, you know, you have uh, in certain parts of Mexico, you have people that like things that are larger or more uh, blingy, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, and, you know, you could probably guess uh, who those guys might be. But you also have people that go for, uh, you know, the traditional brands. There's a huge aspirational market here, uh, as there are in a lot of countries around the world where, you know, people's first foray into, you know, an expensive watch, maybe a Rolex or Omega or a Tag Heuer, something like this, uh, typically a graduation gift from high school or university. And that's where they dip their toe in the pond. And they, some of them, you know, continue to grow uh, as enthusiasts and collectors and start taking on other brands. And maybe their, you know, their next acquisitions are an IWC or a Panerai, something of that sort. But then they start getting uh, their interest piqued by, by other brands like Laurent Ferrier or MB&F or Rubel Forse, uh, 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 Cyrus, uh, brands of this sort. 
Uh, and you find that for uh, autologie, you know, the high watchmaking, there's a very good market here in Mexico, and not all of it is directly through the retailers. So uh, it's it's intriguing. I think you have to have your your feet on the ground here to understand a bit. And I think the first part of it starts with attending the uh, the CR Expo in Mexico City. To be honest with you. So talk a little bit about some of the tastes. You said that. It's obviously varied and a lot of things like that. One of the things I know is because I've been to the South American market a few times, been to Mexico City um, and Rio. And I think that what I found interesting is just this combined interest in high complications. They really know their stuff, but there's a confidence to wear, I'd say, brighter colors. So highly complicated, um, but also I don't, flashy isn't was the right word, but bright and colorful seems to be in more so than other parts of the world. For example, high complication might be more conservative or flashy might also you know, mean that you're not that interested in complications, but you have this combination of these things in South America. How does some of the local culture affect the watch taste? What can work in a South American market that may not be able to work elsewhere? Golly, that's a great question to ask. Uh, and I wasn't pre-prepped for that one, but look, um, you know, by, by contrast to Mexico, you've got other markets which are, are more traditional in their tastes. Uh, brands like uh, Longines, for example, uh, are very strong in countries like Chile and Peru, which are smaller markets, a little bit more conservative. And in Mexico, Brazil, you do have that affinity for things which are larger, brighter, uh, more attention grabbing. You know, one of the brands that's really done incredibly well in Latin America in general, and especially in Mexico, is Hublot. Uh, for example. And, you know, people may have mixed opinion about, you know, that relatively young brand, but they have definitely invested in developing this marketplace. Um, you know, a lot of the local enthusiasts have have taken to the brand, uh, perhaps because of its innovation and it's, it's the whole concept of fusion, but uh, also, you know, there's special editions, which you, you can talk well or, or not about, but it's been an effective mix for these guys. They've definitely invested in this marketplace here. They've demonstrated confidence to their retail partners, uh, as well as help to educate uh, the the, the uh, public and, and create a demand for their timepieces. So uh, that watch has been strongly positioned, probably behind market leaders like Rolex and Cartier for for at least a decade now uh, here in Mexico, uh, in Brazil, and they've also found you know re- really relevant ways to connect with audiences. For example, in Brazil, with their Art and Senna editions and so forth, their Ferrari editions. Um, have really kept interest high in those particular marketplaces. So that's just one example. I always wondered if the local consumers in South America, for example, Mexico, are sometimes, um, I guess you say amused, maybe possibly offended by some of the stereotypes that the Swiss might have. So for example, you have every single year, like tons and tons of Day of the Dead watches. And some of them are great, but is it being overdone? Are they playing with the sort of traditional themes there so much that's becoming a little bit um, cliche? Or is that just sort of how it is? And there's sort of a, a bottomless pit of demand for stuff like that. Well, I think that tradition, that day of the dead tradition and the whole thing with the the, the skulls and the and the uh, calacas, you know, is something which has been around for, you know, centuries here. It's a it's a very deep part of the culture uh, here and, and one that people, you know, continue to identify with. So, you know, to your point, there's been some really uh, interesting and compelling incarnations and others, you know, maybe more insipid. But in general, um, you know, I remember seeing that there was a, a limited edition piece that Chopard did last year, Tourbillon. Uh, they had a very high ticket price, and it was one of the first pieces to be sold at the CR uh, Expo. 
Um, so, you know, the interest never goes away. Uh, two years before that, you know, Fiona Kruger came out with some really interesting, colorful uh, watches playing on the skull theme. And she was very well received here in Mexico. And every year we continue to see new incarnations, which uh, continue to fascinate uh, uh, collectors here uh, in, in Mexico itself. Yeah. Would you say it's a bit of a quirk, for example, in the West, I think, you know, oftentimes watch lovers and brands kind of make fun of the fact that, you know, the number eight is like always associated, if possible, with a watch and sold maybe in the, in the Chinese market. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you think there's a chance that, you know, it's sort of like, um, like, a, like a little bit of a shtick, like it's like, like they're into it too much? Like, you know what I mean? Like they, they potentially are at the point where they need to become more mature of the market because when the market continues to just like something so niche, sometimes it can identify a lack of maturity in the market. And there's some very mature collectors in Mexico, very knowledgeable. But what you're saying is the market is still sort of new there and undeveloped. If it was more developed, you think that these would be sort of less popular because they would be seen as sort of, uh, they're, they're, they're a foreign attempt at, at, at appealing to a culture in a way that is, is distinctly foreign. And I don't know, I'm not, I'm not from there. So you're saying that they sell, that's great. I just always thought that the size of the market and the culture that they have in the background from a design perspective, there's so much more that brands could be doing. That's, at least maybe that's where I'm going with this, is that I well, want there to be more distinctive South American designs, and there just isn't really that many. Well, here you go. I, I mean, a lot of things has to do with brands having good strategic partnerships, but there's something that goes you know, beyond that. Um, I think you know, as uh, whether you're a European or, or an, you know, a, an American from the United States of America that want to come into this market, there, there's a couple of things to understand. And regardless if you're in the watch industry or not, there's 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 a couple of, of cornerstones I think are necessary. One thing is you have to understand, you know, the culture in which you want to, to uh, launch and establish your business. And to do that, you also have to have, I think, a command of the language. So coming here initially with, you know, your Western ideas uh, don't always translate into instant success. So I think one of the things, one of the characteristics of the brands that have succeeded here, and I, I go back to Hugh Blow again, uh, you know, because I, I had worked with the brand, um, uh, you know, over a decade ago uh, as the uh, brand manager for the Caribbean region, but they actually opened operational offices in Mexico, you know, in Colombia uh, for a while in Panama, which is the reason I relocated there initially. And I think by having boots on the ground, you have a much better feel for, for uh, I guess, you know, the whole zeitgeist and, and the market itself in, in, in those countries. And I think that's probably one of the cornerstones of success. Now, the other thing that's interesting, what you asked about was, you know, who are, who are these watches appealing to? And as the watch uh, mature, industry matures, you know, it's not like there's a, only a, a, a certain demographic that's an, a watch enthusiast or collector here in Mexico, for example, and that, you know, once these guys, uh, maybe in the baby boomer generation, move on, that, you know, that, that that's a death knell for any particular brand. But really interesting, this year at the CR, I, I just, uh, I, I had coffee uh, Monday morning with Carlos Alonso, who's, of course, you know, the executive director of, of the CR and also the publisher of uh the leading magazine called El Tiempo. Uh, Tiempo, Tiempo and, and Carlos has done a great job of the event. I mean, I remember I was there a couple of years ago and, and it was it already it was doing such a good job. I mean, there's nothing really else like it, but honestly, kudos to him for it. Because he, I mean, he has, he's got to do so much like puppetry there just to make all that operate. Well, it's 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 it's, it's true. You know, they, they've done a really superb job. Um, I, when I introduced the, uh, the, the brand Wolf 1834 to Latin America, we launched at the CR. That was six years ago. 
And since then, we've, uh, you know, we established a great footprint, I think, across Mexico, Latin America, the Caribbean, uh, together with the Wolfpack uh, team out of L.A., we managed to open 60 points of sale. But a part of our initial success was being able to come into the CR and get visibility with those watch enthusiasts. And, and Carlos has helped so many brands come into the market. You know, it, it's really admirable. Um, the other really interesting feature about CR, which is different than a lot of the other ex watch expos, but, you know, today everybody's talking about, you know, being more inclusive and, and being, you know, customer collector centric and so forth. Which What does I that even mean? It's, I mean, isn't it always supposed to be like that? <laughs> well, no, you know, the traditional shows like, you know, the SIHH, which is now Watches and Wonders or Basel World, which will become, we hope, uh, our universe, have really been for the industry. And, you know, they've had a... a a gratuitous day for the general public. They've charged uh, an entry fee, which I think is reasonable uh, for people to come in and look at watches. But by then, you know, you think you think the fee was reasonable? It's like a hundred dollars to see nothing. Well, you know, I, I think you've got to qualify people from coming in. Maybe that price is a little bit too high, but I don't think you necessarily give that away for free. Uh, I don't. I don't mean free, but it's just like literally that comes with nothing. If you if you well, just right. pay and that amount of money, you you're you don't even get a brochure. No, you're right. You're 100% right. And a lot of the key people in the brands have already gone. So you probably just got a spokesmodel out in front of the booth and, okay, you can go in and have a peek at, you know, the stuff in the front vitrines. No, it wasn't really a great, you know, quote unquote, experiential uh, interaction for watch enthusiasts or collectors. And this is where uh, the CR is differentiated. At the CR, you know, this year they had 60 brands on deck before this before the COVID thing hit us. They ended up with 32, which was still not bad. It was a really incredible expo um, observing respectfully, uh, uh, social distancing and, and safety protocols. It was still very well attended. And the thing is, is that at the CR, you're going to find the brands, you'll find distributors, you'll find retailers, and you'll find, you know, their VIP customers and other people from uh, other uh, luxury industry, uh, industries and so forth attending this. And you have a chance to really, you know, to get in there and talk to the talk to the owners, to the CEOs, to the, to the country brand managers, to really, you know, look, touch, feel, know, the watches and it's it's a a, a really uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, joy in that that event. I, I see it as always being successful, always getting you know rave reviews, and I I think that long before anybody in Europe started talking about we really need to involve more the uh, the guy who's actually going to purchase the watch and wear it on his wrist. You know, uh, CR, CR, CR has been doing that for over a decade. Well, it's already. funny that they'll do it in like Mexico City, but they won't do it in like New York. You know, it's the weirdest thing. Okay, yeah, I don't so get it. In in Latin America, obviously, it's a much you know more close contact culture. How do they handle social distancing? I mean, they must do it, but they must hate it. You know, I haven't heard a whole lot of pushback. You know, it's not like it had, it's been politicized here, not to the extent that it has in the United States. So you know, you you still got some people running around thinking it's thinking it's a hoax. Pretty sure it has but, been by Bolsonaro in, in Brazil. Oh yeah, no, he, yeah, he, that that's been brutal. But you know, I don't, I don't want to devolve into politics here. Anywhere with populist leaders, um, it's been politicized. I think to the I know, it's like not uh, okay in South America to talk about politics, like more so than LA. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, everybody's got an opinion, don't they? But you no, know, look here. At the end of the day, the CR this year was organized in a certain way that you know, you, you know it's it's always been by private invitation, anyways. Um, but what happened this year is you you know you you'd get your your invitation. And uh, you'd receive a confirmation with a QR code. You'd scan your QR code, which would give you access to the, uh, the visitor uh, platform. And on that platform, you know, the CR runs across three full days. You were able to pick uh, three separate time slots of two hours each. And you could 
choose them all on the same day, or you could spread them across two or three days if you wanted to. So basically, you know, you had a certain window in which you could enter and and do your loop around the 32 different exhibits. And, you know, and probably, you know, you'd have to move quickly, but you'd be able to target the, the brands that were, you know, you were most keen on. And you know what? It worked really well. I've heard only, you know, positive comments about that. Uh, nobody balked at the fact they had to wear face masks, that uh, people were limited to uh, two-hour time slots at a time. And at the end, I think the, uh, believe it or not, I, I, I just heard tonight that they actually sold more during that event with only 32 exhibitors than they did last year with, with close to 50 exhibitors. So, you know, the, the enthusiasm of the watch community here in Mexico hasn't uh, diminished. And here's another little tidbit that's incredible. I bet the deals are flying, though, let's be honest. Well, sure. You know, you get to work directly with the brand. I mean, you know, we've had this conversation with other colleagues. In fact, when you and I last saw each other in, in December in Switzerland, in Neuchâtel, um, this is a hot topic of conversation about, you know, where do the brands recuperate that margin that that traditionally has been uh, gobbled up by uh, the distribution chain of distributor and retailer? You know, we've seen a lot of brands uh, during this COVID, you know, I wouldn't even say it was a catalyst. I'd say it was a perfectly convenient uh, pretext to move towards D to C sales. So, you know, when you don't have to necessarily, you know, a lot of these, you know, Cyrus, for example, uh, niche brand. Um, they don't have a retailer in Mexico. There's there's one gentleman who's done an exquisite job of creating private experiences and, and, and showcasing this with really nice meals and and, and cognac tastings and, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and you can get away with that. You got, if you got a guy who's willing to travel and hustle and do it, you can you don't need a store. Sure. No, it's been super successful that way. So, you know, believe it or not, yeah, obviously you're gonna be able to cut a little bit of a deal. You're not gonna pay probably what you would uh, you know, full boat at a retailer. Yeah, so but, but COVID mixed with the fact that there's like no one looking and it's private. I mean, I'm sure that the collectors are able to go there, got like deals that they'll never see any other time ever. Like, you know that that was going on. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying like, I'm jealous. That's probably, they got awesome deals. <laughs> and no doubt they did, you know, and, and a lot of these guys, it's not like they're, they're Johnny come lately. It's just a lot of people are, are, are repeat customers that are efficient, uh, that, that are enthusiasts for any particular brand or a few different brands. So, you know, it's, it's always been a, you know, commercially it's been a, you know, it's not just, uh, from a public relations point of view, uh, and it's never been a lost leader. It's really been a way for for brands to get a foothold uh, and continue telling their story in a relevant and compelling way to the to that Mexican marketplace. So, you know, for sure, uh, it's also been a commercial success. But here's the thing I wanted to share with you, Ariel, is that uh, this year, and and granted, because of of the situation with COVID, they had less attendees in that baby boomer demographic. The bulk of the attendees this year were between 24 to 34 years of age, and the next largest group was from 35 to 44. Um, that's interesting because you know you've got um, a whole group of people that are coming up, and you know right now, let's say the guys that's 24 to 34 may not have the budget to acquire a Grubel Force or an MBNF uh, right off the bat, but you know he may have within in his reach uh, to purchase an you know an IWC. Or a Zenith, or you know, perhaps a a a, a Cyrus or a Lorient Ferrier, or or uh, something uh, of that uh, level. So, uh, you know, it's it's great to see that you've still got these. You know that that you know we talk about how how uh, smart watches have decimated the entry level, uh, you know, uh, Swiss watch marketplace and so forth. And 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 certainly that's a an interesting side conversation. But it's great to see that 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 these uh, Gen Xs and Millennials and so forth 
are still coming to these kind of watch shows and are still interested in in high watchmaking. And that's that that oh, the, well the appeal the of a watch is strong everywhere, not just Latin America. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, you're right. To agree, it sounds counterproductive, but more so today, people want to show that they are a have versus a have not. And a watch shows taste, sophistication, uh, you know, lifestyle, wealth. Watches are unbelievably powerful. And what's happened is that the smartwatch has alerted everyone to look at wrists again. So wristwatches among young, young people, they get viewed more, more than ever. And I think what's interesting is when someone isn't wearing a smartwatch in a, in a group of you know, young people, the person who's not wearing one is like, why are you not wearing a smartwatch? So it has curiosity just, you know, just by itself of why you're not wearing sure. the same thing everyone else. So um, I think that makes total sense. So thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, you know, going back to it, I think that uh, people who haven't been, to, you know, you said you've been to Mexico City and so forth, but it, it's funny brands that I brought here, they're, they're, you know, they, they tell me, oh, you know, is it going to be safe when we go to Mexico City? And I'm like, what are you envisioning? Like uh, Denzel Washington still man on fire, you know, would be like yes. dodging bullets and stuff. And everybody, no, it's not like that <laughs> at all. But, you know, like any major international city, you, you need to be conscientious. Okay. About, you know, Let's be honest, Mark. I, I, you're, you're a great diplomat. And I haven't been everywhere in Mexico City, and it was extremely safe where I was. But that is, you don't want to take a walk alone at night. You can go in Geneva at four in the morning, you know, walking around with bags of money. No one's going to do anything to you. Mexico City, among other places in Latin America, are much more dangerous. And you can't just do those things. You can't be at liberty to do that stuff. Like, you know, it may not be as dangerous. It's not a war zone. It's not like, you know, they, they filmed like RoboCop there. But, <laughs> you know, it's not that far from that. I mean, you don't, you don't go, you don't, you don't drive through that city without seeing tons of like armored cars, military style vehicles, a lot of guns everywhere. Like, you know, it's a, it's a, South America is a hot place. You know, there's conflict. There's, you know, you know, spur ups. It's not like big organized battles, but like it, there's a lot of heat and heat and violence going on all the time. It, there has been throughout the entire history of the region. It's probably the weather. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, no, listen, you know, that's a good point. And, you know, there's a saying here in Spanish, no tiras pan frente a los pobres. Uh, don't throw bread in front of the poor people. Uh, it's not only bad taste, but also put yourself at risk. So to be honest with you, I mean, when I'm at private events and stuff, yes, I can wear a very nice watch, but in my quotidian life, and especially if I'm going out, you know, for for, you know, uh, a meal and a few drinks with some friends in the evening, number one, I'll take an Uber back to my apartment here in Mexico City. And number two, I generally wear a tosser watch. Um, you know, I'll wear something that looks great, but, you know, cost maybe a few hundred dollars. You know, if perchance I happen to be in a situation where somebody was going to relieve me of my watch, I'm not going to cry over a $300 timepiece, but I certainly wouldn't be wearing out, uh, you know, uh, if I was prudent, I wouldn't be wearing out a, you know, a nice Panerai or Rolex or AP or whatever, because, you know, I, I just, it would be throwing the dice to your point and to be honest with you. So, yeah. Good to know. Good to know. Well, thank you for that yeah. little uh, lesson into the Latin American market. Again, it's just not a place that um, a lot of people have access to, at least understand the watch culture there. Um, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles, you know, uh, full of a very rich Hispanic culture. And I, I learned nothing about Mexican watch tastes, anything like that. No idea until I got into the watch world and then, you know, started meeting people outside of LA. So um, I just found it interesting to learn about and thank you for sharing. So when you got started in the watch industry, it was kind of a golden time because there was a lot of feeding frenzy activity going on. Like there was a lot of ways for, sure. for a lot of people to make a lot of money. And it's it's much more challenging market today. It's 
it's it's murder today compared to how it was in times in the in the 80s in the 90s and things like that where there was just a lot of <clears throat> amazing sales going on and a lot of different types of reasons so the caribbean had you know it, island stores it had you know these these ports it had the the cruise ships and things like that and for a very long time as an american or other people traveling um, to these resorts or on these ships the caribbean was the best place to buy um, a luxury Swiss watch in the sense that you basically could get the best price and there was also an amazing selection. And individuals such as yourself were part of that where you had this extremely wealthy middle class that was going there that wanted to reward themselves. And again, compared to today, it was a lot easier to make a buck. And so I'd like you to share some stories about that. Explain what some of these experiences were, where you could get the watches, confirm or deny what I said about it being one of the best places to get a deal. And you had people that were like, you know, on watch buying tourism and stuff like that. So sure. again, just you know, start to paint a little sto- a little picture about some of your memories of it. And I just sort of want to spend the rest of the conversation talking about all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, joking aside, I guess I could probably write the book on that or at least be one of the authors of, of the book. It's been an interesting story across the years. I started uh, in the luxury goods industry and, and, and particularly with travel retail in 1991. It was a 90-degree a, a, a turn from my original career, but one that I never regretted. Um, back in the early 90s, I was working with uh, the PPI group, which was Bill Panoff's company. And it, it was, look, before 1990, let's say, it was kind of the wild west out there where actually the cruise directors were promoting a handful of stores in each of the ports of call and uh, and making, you know, pirate-style booty. Uh, every single call, they'd come back to the ship with a paper bag full of cash. <laughs> and uh, I'm not joking. And uh, it, it really was a great time. And they were sending people uh, so they the were sending people stores to the stores and then they were making yeah. a cut of the total sales, right? Because they were basically sure. moving heads over there. They they were. And, you know, uh, there were a couple of really smart guys, Bill Panoff and Philip Levine. You might recognize the latter name because Philip was uh, not long ago the mayor of Miami Beach. But he was the founder of the company that became Onboard Media, which was later sold to uh, LVMH Group and is part of the selective retail group of uh, – of, of LVMH, which includes Starboard Cruise Services and DFS and Sephora, for example. Uh, and then he later started another company uh, called Royal Media Partners, which uh, serves the Royal Caribbean, uh, Azamara, and celebrity ships. So he was definitely you know, one of the, the, the prescient and visionary industry leaders. The other guy was Bill Panoff, who I went to work for as one of his first employees in 1991. And what they did was, you know, it, it, it was... It, resented because they basically took that that privilege out of the hands of the cruise director and they formalized an onboard revenue center that the cruise lines could benefit from by having an, an onboard port shopping guide that would give a little bit of a talk about okay folks we'll be in st thomas tomorrow here's what you can expect spend the morning at megan's bay what nat geo calls one of the most beautiful beaches in the world but by 12 noon get downtown to charlotte amalia because that is truly the mecca of duty-free shopping and you will find deals of up to 70 percent off of what you normally pay uh in the united states you know some of that was a bit of you know a little bit of exaggeration and schmaltz but in general let me give you an example uh going directly to your point you could buy a tag hoyer back in 1991 in one of the authorized retailers in the caribbean for 25% below U.S. retail and no sales tax. 
Okay. Today, that's that's like more than thirty percent off, and this is you know basically pre-internet and everything like that. Hundred percent. You know, today the only thing you're saving on is the sales tax. Okay, and then if it's above you know a certain franchise amount or whatever the designated amount is for U.S. citizens, for example, you got to declare that coming back into the states and still pay you know a tax above and beyond whatever the the, the customs allowance is. Um, and that, you know, it's a whole separate conversation, but those kind of deals don't exist today. There was a time we could go in, you could buy a Vacheron, a Jager Lecoultre, a Breitling, a, a, you know, a Tag, a Cartier, and get a really great price. Those kind of wild opportunities just don't exist anymore today. And, it, and it's not because, you know, the brands have gotten greedy and don't want to, you know, give that mar- much margin away to promote. Um, you know, they, they've, they've had other expenses. What's turned out is that, for example, on the cruise ships also, uh, just as like in the airports and travel retail venues, most of those boutique operators are actually concessionaires. There's very few cruise lines that actually own and operate their own boutiques. One ex- exception would be, for example, MSC Cruises uh, out of Europe. But all the others have concessionaires. And there's big name, big name players, you know, Starboard Cruise Services, Harding Retail. Um, uh, who else do you have out there? Uh, you know, there's other. Yeah, there's I other don't know those are, those are, uh, I've been on one free. cruise in my life and I was too young to be buying expensive watches. Well, what happens to the, you know, to the, to the boutiques operating in the cruise ships, same as the duty-free operators in the airports, is that the airport, uh, the, the, the owners of that real estate are squeezing those brands harder and harder for more and more margin and saying, look, it, you want to be in our store? You know, pay the margin. Otherwise, we can put another brand in the showcase. It's not a big deal. They'll, they'll so they, so they ruined a good thing. They definitely ruined a good thing. So it wasn't like the brands took away those opportunities. The watch brands didn't take those opportunities away from the collectors. It was the landlords that were squeezing for higher and higher rents. Darn greedy landlords. Hey, you know, it is what it is, but that's the reality of the situation. And that's why today, you know, you know, when we talk about duty-free savings and that, you know, what are they really? They're negligible. Yeah, so, I know. You know that's why you know. I, like, I understand they push it so much. I'm like, what country are you coming from? And again, we don't have a VAT in, in America, so... You know, I don't know what it's like to spend, you know, be like, oh, my God, this is 60 percent less than my home country. But those it's places like are vanishingly no. thin these days. There's just not that many of it. Well, look, I mean, let's let's say you're going to buy a, a Submariner and you go to uh, one of the authorized boutiques in the Caribbean. You're not going to pay the sales tax on that. What what does that represent today? Maybe a nice meal out at Smith and Walensky or something like that. But but it's not like, you know, you're going to go home and say, wow, I got a killer deal on that Rolex. You yeah, know, it's just not good luck if they like even that. have the watch. Well, that also is a consideration. But at the end of the day, you know, when people take a vacation, they're relaxed. They're more, as you as you mentioned, you know, they're more predisposed to reward themselves or or pick up a a, a memento of their of their trip to remind them. You know, I was on my tenth anniversary cruise with my wife, and we got a pair of matching Omega uh, uh, timepieces or something. So, you know, there's always that that impetus to purchase a watch when you're on a holiday in the Caribbean uh, on a cruise ship or staying in a hotel. So, so here's what interests me. Here's what interests me, because you were on the front line of getting people who were consumers that had the disposable income excited about watches. But these weren't watch people, right? Like they didn't they weren't like, oh, we're a bunch of watch collectors and we're here like that wasn't even really a thing. You had to first get people, a lot of people interested in the promise of a luxury watch. You had a very short amount of time to do it. So it's like one conversation to get you excited and then another conversation to tell you what to get. You had very little time. What was the what was the strategy at the time? Tell us a little bit who these consumers were. What did what, what did watches mean to them? Uh, Gal, you know, I think it's evolved over the years, but I think that you know the the marquee brands have always been the marquee brands. Um, you know, there were the, the the big the big players. You know, even you know twenty or thirty years ago, names that people recognize. You know, still today and still desire those timepieces. But what do we do? 
we basically, we had a sort of a media juggernaut. So on board, we would do a live talk uh, to people. And, you know, it, it was always funny how I'd pitch size, you know, ladies and gentlemen, please make your way now to the Carmen Lounge for this very important talk on shopping in St. Thomas, you know, <laughs> and I, you know, I'd get a packed house. I'd get, you know, uh, you know, several hundred people come to my shopping talk. And what I'd say is, you know, folks tomorrow we're going to be in, I, I keep on using St. Thomas cause it's, you know, one of the key shopping ports, but I'd say folks will be in lovely St. Thomas tomorrow. It's a great place to enjoy the beach in the morning, but shopping in the afternoon should be your priority. I'm here to help you out and tell you about all the stores where you can shop with confidence. Now, you know, the pirates of the Caribbean are still out there, but now they're shop owners. So you want to be sure that you can shop in a store where you're going to get the real deal. You're 2000 miles away from home. You want to make sure that you can shop there with confidence. All the stores on my recommended shopping map are paid advertisers. And as such, they've given the cruise line a written guarantee of customer satisfaction. So in the unlikely event, you have any problem with your purchase, its value, its quality, its authenticity, this cruise line will stake its multi-billion dollar reputation to back up your purchase. And did that, did that ever like need to be brought into play? Like how often were there issues? R- rarely. Because, okay. you know, why, why would these retailers spoil that privileged relationship with the right. cruise line to be included on a, a shop? Map? So, so they you know, took they it seriously. Bad. So it was like a, re- it was a real service that you're providing. It was, and it still is today, you know, even, you know, despite the COVID up until the time of the COVID, these shopping programs had evolved and become incredibly sophisticated. But at the end of the day, they were meant to do two things, drive revenues and drive customer satisfaction because people love to shop. And when they're far from home, they want to be able to shop with confidence without worrying about getting ripped off. And, you know, if perchance they spend the money on on an expensive timepiece and they get home, they don't want to find out that it was, you know, it's it's a knockoff and that they have no recourse. <laughs> you know, So yeah. this, this, these, these organized shopping programs are legitimate and they do have a value, but they've been optimized, uh, to, you know, today, you know, fast forward 30 years from when I started. They've been optimized to to maximize revenue for uh, the cruise ships, for the island retailers, and also uh, to really drive customer satisfaction. You know, they don't want to have a bad reputation. Who wants bad press? So I think the stores which have uh, stepped up and signed up uh, for this paid advertising program have really done a great service for shopping in general, uh, in travel, retail, duty-free venues, as well as for the watch industry, because... You know, we've driven folks to go there and buy their 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 jewelry and and to buy their watches. Was it was it a profitable bonanza, or was it still hard then to sell a, a luxury watch? You know, like was it not that much? Because I, you know, from the, some of the stories I've heard, at least compared today, you had this captive audience. They it's like they wanted to buy some stuff because they knew they were getting deals. Today it's deals everywhere, deals at home, deals abroad, deals, 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 deals. But there, you know, there's this idea that they they think that they can get deals that they'll never get again. They don't know if they're ever going to come back there. They probably won't. Um, and so you have this audience and, you know, was it, was it a bonanza? Was it like popping champagne all the time? Well, you know, I think it was close to that and why, you know, uh, I think the store owners, the store operators in the Caribbean, they knew that if, if perchance a cruise guest made it to their store, they may have had 15 or 20 minutes to, to close a sale. So they were very motivated. And you know what, listen, if they had to take a margin hit and give the guy a 15% or 20% discount, it's very likely, you know, that they did uh, do that. Now, one of the other things I used to do on the ship was it wasn't just I give the shopping talk and then we had, you know, an in-cabin book, you know, with some advertisements from, from uh, you know, some key brands and so forth. I would have office hours. 
uh, I would stand at the gangway the first hour the ship would arrive and I'd be standing there with my shopping maps. And also I'd have these VIP shopping cards I'd write with my signature on them. It was obviously a way for <laughs> this. No, really, it was a way for the stores to be able to track. No, I love you know, these what, strategies what, because they're smart. But I mean, you can't, you, you know, you, if you treat the people like cattle, you're not going to be able to do anything. So you had to learn all this no, psychological no, tricks. Right. No. And they smarten up, too, because, you know, you have some of the cruise lines have over 50 percent repeat cruise guests. So, you know, I mean, you can't get up there like a snake oil, you know, a snake oil salesman and NBS people because they're going to catch on to it quickly. So, you know, you, you had to run a legitimate program. But here's the thing I used to do. I would do a, a watch buying seminar and, you know, it would be typically like a 45 minute sit down. And I how would this be promoted? First of all, like who I want to I want to have an idea of who who's in the audience here. Sure. It was promoted in the daily program. And of course I would play that up, you know, on the, on the introduction, uh, on the welcome aboard show and, you know, they'd introduce people say, hi, I'm Mark, your port and shopping guide. I lived in the Caribbean for the last 17 years and I'm your local shopping expert. I'm here to help you save time and money and maximize your enjoyment of the cruise. So no matter what you're looking for, whether it's a souvenir, a beautiful piece of jewelry, a fine timepiece, I'm here to offer you expert advice and to help you achieve all of those things. Come and see me during my desk hours every night from seven to nine, and I'll be happy to answer your questions. And if appropriate, I'll give you my VIP uh, shoppers discount card that you know will immediately get you a discount in any of the stores that I recommend to you. So you know it's very transparent that way. But in the watch buying seminar, I'd have typically about an average of thirty people would come in, and I'd say, guys, you know, you're, you're you know, there's so many choices out there, and you've got a short amount of time in the port of call. You know, how do you focus on getting a watch you want and still have time to enjoy a nice lunch at the beach or, you know, whatever you want to do? So let's start by answering a couple quick questions you know, or pointing out a couple quick things. You know, first of all, having a watch wardrobe, it's perfectly OK. You know, you may wear a more formal watch during the week with your business suit. On the weekends, you want something more sporty. And if you're going to go out and, you know, uh, run a marathon or work in the garden or whatever, you know, you want something you can bang up a bit and not worry about it getting dirty or sweaty or whatever. So, you know, having three or four watches in your possession, having a watch wardrobe is perfectly legitimate. Now, what's a watch for you? Here's the two questions you need to ask yourself. What's your lifestyle and what's, you know, congruent with that lifestyle and what's your budget? And taking those two things into account, I can narrow down what watches you might be interested in and send you to the stores which carry those particular brands who are authorized retailers and who are insured by the cruise line. And it was very effective. I mean, I was a legitimate uh, authority on shopping for fine watches in the Caribbean, and I saved people a lot of time and money and, and allowed them to maximize their enjoyment of their vacation by by providing that service. But so you were one of the good ones. Were there were there yeah. bad versions of you? Were there were the ones you're like, oh my God, I hope that no one has to listen to him or her because they're just going to steer them the wrong direction. They're self-serving or they just don't know what they're talking about. Just ignorance. Very, very few. I mean, all the shopping guides were really properly prepped to, to give informative okay. talks. And, you know, there was too much at stake for people to be uh, disingenuous. Uh, I think that anything that would reflect negatively either on a brand or a retailer or the cruise lines that were promoting them, uh, you know, the cruise lines just didn't want that. They don't want the bad press. They don't want people to have a bad experience because they're they're primarily interested in two things, and that is to drive revenues and to drive customer satisfaction because they want people to say, you know what, we cruise on celebrity as an example. We had a great time. The food was great. The attention was incredible. The shopping was off the hook. Our shopping guide, the guy pointed us in the right direction. We got a beautiful Tanzanite ring for my wife. I was able to pick up that Breitling Navitimer I've been looking at for like the last two years. And wow, you know, so the cruise lines really wanted that. They didn't want like, you know, who's that shyster that kind of, you know, they sent us down, you know, 
sneaking right. Sally through the alley to buy some some you know crappy knockoff <laughs> or pre-owned. You know, it, it wasn't like that. I mean, it, I think you know largely it was it was totally legitimate, and they were transparent because when they they said, "Listen, folks, stick to the stores on the guaranteed shopping map." All of these stores are paid advertisers, and as such. They have given the cruise line a written guarantee of quality, value, and authenticity. We're here to back up your purchases and allow you to shop with confidence no matter how far you are away from home. And that was really uh, what that program was about. You know what I love about that? It's, it doesn't hide anything. Like it, it has a very clear value proposition. It's honest. And these days, the communication with the luxury consumer is totally different. It's ambiguous. There's no direct messaging. You don't know who's making money. You don't even know if it's an ad or not. And when you respect the consumer's intelligence enough to not totally BS them, you get away with little tiny things here and there. Whereas, and tell me if you disagree, but luxury wa luxury watch or just luxury advertising now or advertising is just meant to be confusing. It's like the fake news era of, of, of advertising where like you don't know what to believe. And I think that the consumer now is so defensive and so skeptical that they just, you know, misled consumers into a hole. Well, I think one of the big the big pitfalls that happened in the luxury industry was that it was commoditized globally. And, you know, when something gets commoditized, you know, uh, you know, you could say, well, you know, we want to have uh, continuity of brand experience. So whether I walk into any particular luxury boutique, whether it's in Shanghai, Milan, Miami, London, I'm kind of like seeing the same kind of cookie cutter thing. And I'm saying to myself, you know, what's so special about that experience? What differentiates this from, from anything else? And why did that happen? Why did the commoditization happen? And again, for people that don't know what that means, help to explain that a little bit. Well, I think that you know, the things that we traditionally valued as, as luxurious, whether it was, you know, uh, the patrimony, the story behind the quality of the materials, the quality of the craftsmanship, the fact that they couldn't produce things in volume uh, made them uh, not only pricier, but more difficult to find and to uh, acquire. But, uh, you know, as, as bigger groups started to acquire some of these brands, they were able to inject capital uh, scale production and make it more globally available. So what they were selling uh, wasn't, I believe, I, I could be wrong here, but what I believe is that that those things that we valued in traditional luxury became different. It was just the actual image of the brand itself uh, that became the status symbol and not the object itself. You know, and and oh, I see. So it just became it, it became too available in the sense that the whole point was rare. It's hard to get. You had to get it from some distant land. You know, it's like the idea of like, are diamonds really that valuable? And if in any major city you have to, you can drive within 10 minute drive, you can buy diamonds. Like literally anywhere you are in the world in a decent city, you can buy diamonds. This must be this valuable, rare thing. Yet I don't think I've ever been to a place where diamonds aren't within 10 minutes of me. Yeah, sure. I'll give you another example since we're talking about watches. You know, um, when I when I was back when I worked with the LVMH group, um, you know, like 17 years ago, 15, 17 years ago, whatever, I, I worked for them for quite a while in, in some of the different departments. But uh, one of the groups I worked with had a mantra of what we called unexpected luxury. What did that mean versus expected luxury? There's certain brands that you expect to talk about. Somebody talks about luxury. Oh, yes, you know, this, that or the other brand. Sure. But I would say to people, look at, you know, if people like, like those brands, they have an affinity for those brands, and they may already have a relationship with a boutique manager in you know the city they live, uh, where they come from, et cetera. But what if we were able to surprise them with things which were either uh, hard, if not impossible, to find where they live, and 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 show them unique things? So you know, here's an example. Um, 
let's say, you know, if somebody gave me a gift, let's give me a Rolex Submariner, I'd be like, wow, what, you know, that's an awesome gift. You know, iconic design, you know, venerable brand, you know, a, t- a $10,000 watch that if, if ever I had to sell it, I could probably recuperate pretty, pretty close to, to the value of that watch when it was new, you know, what's wrong with that? You know, it's great. I said, well, you know, that's expected luxury. But then I go to the tennis club or the golf club and I see 50 other guys in the locker room are wearing the same watch. And I say to myself, well, you know, what's so special about that? But then, you know, let's just, you know, it means you know, you're part of the club, set. bro. Yeah. And it's true. And, you know, that's important to some consumers and I get that. And, and that's, that works for those brands, but you have some guys that have, you know, a, a more evolved taste that may have the sort of sartorial aplomb where they don't need somebody else's approval for, you know, verification of, of their, of their, their self-worth or something. So, you know, some other guy, let's, uh, you know, I'll just take a, you know, a brand that I happen to admire maybe because I'm half British is that, you know, I, let's say I, I go and I pick up a, a Bremont Martin Baker and I'm wearing that at the golf club now. And, you know, it's got the orange, uh, the orange uh, trip to, you know, the orange barrel. And the guy's like, Mark, you know, what's that watch you wear? That's kind of cool. I'm like, uh, dude, you know what? I happen to be in London on my anniversary and I popped into the Bremont boutique when I was strolling through Mayfair doing some window shopping. I got to tell you guys, and you know, and I've got a story to tell behind that, you know, a watch with a cool story and that nobody else has, you know, it kind of gives me bragging rights. So for yeah. me, that's more luxurious than having what everybody else has. You speak think- as a seasoned, sophisticated buyer. And just a few months ago, we we're talking about the fact that when these customers came to the Caribbean, what they do, they ran after the brands they know. They didn't make any independent decisions. First thing they were like, I've heard of that brand. Right. Well, I think, you know, the watch industry has done a fantastic job in its evolution. You know, there's there's a lot of choices out there today. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you take a multi-brand, you know, there's 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 a handful of great multi-brand stores around the world. But how many brands can they really showcase? And, and, and you know, even if they have like, say, 50 brands, you know, what about the other 500 brands that are out there that people can choose from? How do those guys get FaceTime? How do they get to, you know, to, to, to share themselves with, with uh, potential uh, customers? You know, where do they go? Look, so it's, hard, think, it's hard for those brands. I mean, look, sure it is. the guys at the LVMHs of the world have made this conclusion that's mostly correct. And that is, if you spend enough money to get a name and image in front of people enough times, oddly, they start to demand it. Like if you say Louis Vuitton like enough times as people throughout their life, when they have an opportunity to buy uh, like something that is within that price range, it's like the first thing to go to because they've heard it so many times. That's not the whole story about how you create demand, but if you want to commoditize it, which is what's necessary for you to make like, you know, luxury, you know, like big conglomerate dollars, you have to make sure that people everywhere want it and can also get it. And so you're saying that there's this subsection of luxury that always will exist right next to mainstream luxury, but mainstream luxury is still what keeps the light on for a lot of people. So I'm just hearing you as a consumer yourself having advanced to that more elite position that, again, a lot of collectors are at, but it's like without the mainstream buying the brand and it being more of a superficial experience, you know, luxury industry goes back to being like a super boutique, super cottage industry, not enough to pay anyone. And it, it wouldn't be a thing around the world. You know, you're right about that. And I'm not saying that it's wrong that, that you know, that, that, that luxury was commoditized or that's the way it works today. Because think about this, you know, as, as, as a guy comes into the watchmaking, you know, into the watch world, let's just say, you know, a guy, you know, young professional guys, an engineer or whatever, 
you know, he has an appreciation for things mechanical. He he, he likes the backstory, you know, the, the 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 centuries of tradition behind how you know wash making evolved and so forth. And he says, you know, well, I'm at a point now that I I can probably afford to get myself a decent timepiece, and you know, maybe I'll start with something sporty like a Tag Heuer. You know, so you know, what's your entry level price point there? And then he graduates and he thinks, you know, well, I, I got a really nice bonus this year. I'm going to step up into something else. And he he starts maybe looking, uh, you know, at a at an Omega or maybe a a, a Rolex. And so he starts building this time collection of, of known brands. And it's kind of cool because, you know, he's got his Rolex, he's got his Omega, he's got his, his Tag Heuer. But then he thinks, you know, wow, you know, as, as he becomes more aware of, of, of watches and, you know, all, and, and the, the really, you know, large number of brands that are of, of cool brands that are out there. He starts, you know, to explore and he thinks, well, what do I want next? Do I want another Omega necessarily? No. How about I, I, I graduate to something a little bit different or something a little bit quirky or maybe you know what that new reservoir watch is, is really cool with that retrograde uh hand on it or meister singer is really cool with that that uh you know the, you know that regulator uh, movement and stuff like that so he goes for something that's that's not quite as mainstream and i think that's where they start to transition into looking uh for other brands that not necessarily everybody has and just you know things that appeal to their sense of of, of style or or their preferences and i think that's kind of a, a normal pathway to go. Nobody jumps right into a Group L4 say or into an MBNF, do they? <laughs> so I can know, you imagine if that was someone's first watch. It's like Group L4 say the first one. Like have you ever you know like have you worn watches before us or no, no, straight to this. I heard this was cool. Could afford it. Can you imagine? Yeah, where do you go from there? I mean there's 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 not many more places you can go once you've gotten to that level. You go to G Shock is what you do when you don't want someone, you know, you don't want your watch to break. <laughs> I mean, like Grubel for I I love Grubel for say. I mean, such great finishing, super cool. But like, I I don't know that I'd ever be more afraid. Like, imagine walking around in Mexico City at night with a Grubel for say. Like, you you wouldn't keep your pants dry. Well, dude, you know what? I don't think anybody would would particularly recognize that unless they really knew their watches. You know, I think the people that are, the watches that 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 you know probably the the. What, yeah, the, the, what they the, do? The they hold the, the gang comes. They hold you down. They say, "What's on your wrist?" They Google it for a minute. Thirty seconds. They're like, "We got someone." <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, such is the such is the, uh, the evolution <laughs> of, of modern technology making our lives better or worse in this case. But so what? Yeah. What ended the golden age of this? You know, this this bonanza sales in the Caribbean. I, I I feel like it's the internet, but maybe it's something else. You talked a little bit about the greedy landlords, but. I don't know that that's it right there because after no. a few years, you know, they'd notice they'd, they'd correct. What, what was it? What ended all that era? Listen, I have, I have some friends that are, are, are prominent retailers in St. Martin, for example. And I remember several years ago, they started to complain to me vehemently about how, you know, internet has really uh, impacted their sales. You know, so, you know, what, how are they able to compete with that? You know, they have the ability to, to take a margin hit, but who wants to just make 10 points on a watch, you know, that you've taken the time to, to select, to prepay for, to import into your, you know, particular country to showcase to, to, you know, you're paying rent, you're paying light, you're paying employees. You want, you know, you, you've trained your employees to be able to, to, you know, passionately tell the story around this watch. And then you're only making 10 points on that. You know, that kind of takes the wind out of your sales, you know? So, so it's the, um, the further erosion of the margins. Yeah, that that's happened. You know, I mean, they have to take a bigger margin hit to be able to move the watch because people are shopping that stuff and comparing. It. It's like, well, you know, I was on the internet and I, I happened to see in Chrono Twenty Four and Watchboxes so that I could get this watch at this price. And you know, if you can't match that, then you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to help you out here. So they've they've really kind of muscled uh, some of those Caribbean retailers, and they've they've had to be 
oh, motivated enough to, you know, to take that margin hit to be able to move the piece. And obviously, you know, you've got to move that inventory. You can't be sitting on that stuff because to, to buy in the, the, the following year's collection, you know, you've got to have the uh, open to buy dollars. So it's, you know, the whole dynamic is very challenging and, you know, not everybody can, can, can weather that. Are there places in the world right now, I think Hong Kong was this until recently, and, and I don't mean the recently this year, I mean a few years ago it started going away, was the sort of you know other place you go for the crazy deals. What do you hear about today? Where can people go um, to get the crazy deals? I, 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 the Blog to Watch team has talked about this, and we think that actually America right now is probably one of the best places. Actually, Europe might be good as well. But what, you know, what, like word on the street is like, where do you go for like the crazy hot deals now? No, I think you have to do a bunch of homework. And I'm, I'm not an expert on the U.S. market, even though I'm, you know, I'm half American. I've lived outside of the country for the last 32 years. So I can't tell you I'm an expert on the marketplace there. Um, you pointed out earlier that relationships are important, not, not, not just for those of us in the industry, but those of us who are collectors or aficionados or a particular brand, you know, you get to know the boutique manager. So maybe you get, maybe you're one of the first guys in line to get that limited edition piece. And also, you know, after you've bought a few time pieces, I think the boutique manager or owner is, is probably more inclined to, you know, to cut you to like, Hey, listen, you know what? My son's graduating. I want to get him a date. Just, you know, maybe you're going to cut a better deal on something like that. Um, but regionally, I don't think you're going to do poorly in the Caribbean. I think it's still a great spot to buy a watch. Um, and you know, if you communicate ahead of time with the uh, boutique, you know, you, you find them online, you find their, you know, their info ad or, or whatever the, the email address is. And you say, uh, you know, dear sir, I've, I've been shopping around for a watch. Uh, I'm, I'm just from this particular model wondering if you have it in inventory. And, you know, I've seen some, uh, very competitive pricing here in the U S uh, on, on some of the, uh, different internet channels. But uh, I'd be interested to uh, potentially acquire this watch from you if, if you can make a, a, a competitive offer for me. And our ship's calling into port on the 27th of October, and uh, I'd be glad to stop by your shop in the afternoon and have a look. You know, can we play ball? So it goes back to just relationship building. So what I'm hearing is that prices, the retail price across the world has been so, um, I don't want to say stabilized, but it's been so standardized that every retail essentially has more or less the same margin to play with. So the idea isn't where in the world, it's what retailer can you have a good relationship with that will is willing to extend the most preferable terms to you. Well, that's that's true. And that would be great if you know you're you say you live in Philadelphia and you're dealing with you know two or three retailers in the greater Philadelphia area, you can build that relationship. But it's a whole different dynamic in the Caribbean. Unless you're a repeat cruiser and you're going back and you say, Oh, I always shop at Royal Caribbean because Mr. Vivek always takes care of me and so forth. But like I said, you know Is there a lot of that? Like are there like the, the people that go out like on the same cruise? Or maybe they go on the same cruise line. They they have a preference for a particular cruise line, but you know, Princess has twenty different ships in their fleet, and several of them are playing in the Caribbean during the high season. You know, during the Caribbean high season, so you know they may definitely come back. If they have a good experience, not only will they tell their their the people sitting at their dinner table like, "Oh, you're going to St. Thomas tomorrow. You got to go see Vivek at Royal Caribbean." You know, uh, those things are always positive. That word of mouth advertising, but yeah, they they do. There are repeat cruisers. They do tend to be loyal to stores they go to. And here's the gig: whether you're a repeat customer or a first time guy, you know, a first time buyer going into one of those stores. Those store owners know that they've only got you there one day and maybe you're in their store if your interest is peaked, you know, for 15 or 20 minutes before they have to go on with the wife and continue shopping for, you know, a piece of jewelry or some T-shirts for the kids, etc. So, you know, those guys in those stores, they, they really know their beans and they're great 
sales guys as well, but they're super motivated to cut a deal because, you know, I mean, even if they take, even if they have to take a margin hit of, of 10 points, you know, or 15 points to move that watch, I mean, that's better than having that watch sitting in the showcase for another two months without being sold. This has been such a good conversation. We're almost out of time, but I want, okay. I want to end with you giving some advice. And that is based upon the many different places that you've either sold watches directly or, or overseen sales and things like that. Give some, give some pointers to the people who have those jobs today, the people that are, you know, watch sales staff or trying to sell for their own brand or, or whatever it is. You, you know, you, you were sort of like raised in an era where some of these skill sets were honed the most. And now a lot of the salespeople who become good, it's sort of an accident, right? They don't really have anyone to learn from. It's sort of like, a, I accidentally became a good watch salesperson. <laughs> so yeah, you know, throw out some advice there because I'm not saying that's like the primary person listening, but it is a hard thing to do. And if you don't know what you're doing, you can totally blow a sale where you would have connected someone with a watch they would have loved just because you're, you, it, I mean, I don't know any other industries that you can just completely blow a sale by being a poor conversationalist. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, Absolutely. You know, one of the things I used to do on the ship, uh, you know, for example, when I worked with Celebrity. I had the, the uh, I had guest privileges. So I was able to go to the cigar bar. It was called the Michael's Club at that time. And, you know, I enjoy cigars still to this day, but I go to that club. And if I'd see a fellow walked in that was, you know, well healed, you know, typically I was able to. And again, because I, I did the homework, I read a lot I, about the brands. I looked at all the brands and stores and stuff, but I could typically identify a watch pretty much by, you know, or at least the brand by the crown that was sticking off underneath the short cuff. And, and what was my, you know, my opening for you with the guy? I'd say, sir, I can see that you're a gentleman. I can see that you're a gentleman that appreciates a fine timepiece. I'm sure there's a great story behind the one you're wearing today. Oh, wow. Boom, let the guy that, talk. That, that, I'm sure that, that I'm sure it impressed people. Anyone get creeped out by there's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, you know, like, did you ever like, I don't know. I'm just trying to think like you must've had some funny experience that people took you the wrong way. Well, yeah, I'll tell you one of them. So here, here's a funny story. And I, I got in a little bit of trouble with the hotel director on this. Cause again, you know, <laughs> it, everything is really about the, 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 the cruise guests. They want to make sure people have a positive experience, you know, in every way. So I, you know, I occasionally get a heckler in my, in my, uh, my watch buying seminar. And one day, you know, I got, you know, it's always, you know, the guys from New York, you know, and I, and I, you know, I grew up in New York state, but you know, near to Buffalo. So I, I didn't, uh, a lot of friends from New York city and, and, and the Island, but you know, you always pick them up with that, that very distinctive accent. And I, you know, and, and a lot of these times these guys would come and say, I could get a better deal in New York. I'm like, well, great. Sir. That's you know, a good no accent, Mark. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. No reason to waste your time here, sir. Go, go and enjoy Megan's Bay when you're in St. Thomas. Cause you know, if you get a better, better deal in New York, you know, don't, don't waste your time on the shopping strip. I'm with you. But anyway, one of my shop and one of my, uh, my, my watch buying seminars, I had a heckler in the back and the guy says to me, Hey, Mr. Smarty Pants. So what does your $3,000 Rolex do that my $30 Timex can't do? I said, nothing, sir. They both tell a time. And no doubt your Ford Pinto gets you from point A to point B. And boom, he went down and complained to the hotel director. I got a dressing down for insulting the guy. Oh, and my gosh. Him. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've learned since then to kind of nip it in the bud. I don't, uh, I, I'm a little <laughs> more gentle on that, but you know, the guy was a, an incessant heckler and I just, I, I wanted to put him out of my misery. What a, what a context to heckle, you know what I mean? Sure. Well, no, you know, people would, you know, and look at, it's totally legitimate. People may doubt your veracity. They think, you know, who, who is this wheeler dealer up here trying to, trying to, you know, uh, you know, but they chose to watches. go to a sales event. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, like you have to watch this before dinner. It was like, you chose to come down here. <laughs> 
<laughs> great point. Great point, Ariel. But that was one of my, my, you know, one of my funnier stories anyways. But by and large, it was a real positive experience for both myself and for the people, you know, to, to educate them. And in terms of those guys, you said, you know, how do you become a good sales guy now? You know, if you're lucky enough, find a mentor. I'm a pay it forward kind of guy. I'm, I'm, I'm 60 years old now. Still enjoy the industry. I'm not going to be around forever. What can I do to make sure that it, it, its health continues on into the future is, is find people that are, are as passionate about the industry as I am. And, and share with them some knowledge, some stories, some advice, and 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 pay it forward so that they can continue on in their career and enjoy the same pleasure. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to dissect, if you will, your advice, and it is invest the time to develop the skill to make quick but meaningful conversations with people. Because if you have a superficial conversation with someone, your goal is to sell them something as meaningful as a watch. It's just not going to happen. And so if you can't find a way to connect with people on a meaningful level, um, it's going to be difficult to have success. But if you can, um, you can, you can, you can be great at what you do. You can be really great at selling watches. Sure. Well, you know, there's, there's an old platitude that's not really a platitude. It's not a cliche at all. And it's, it, it says, you know, people will never care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. So, you know, whether I happen to be a whiz kid, mm. know everything about the, you know, uh, uh, you know, sophisticated complications and so forth, people don't really care about that. But if I open it up and saying, Hey, sir, I can see that you're, you're a fellow that really appreciates a fine timepiece. And, you know, like the one you're wearing right there, I'm sure it's got a great story behind it. You know, you're opening up the door for that guy to tell you his story, you know, and in listening to him and, and talking about all the other stuff around that issue, you kind of become friends. You can confide and say, well, listen, you know, if you happen to be in the market for another watch, St. Thomas or St. Martin are great spots. If there's any particular brands you're interested in. I probably know the authorized retailer. I'm, I'd be happy to, you know, set up a meeting for you. If you need to pick up from the ship uh, or if you just want to pop by at your leisure, I'll let them know that you're coming. Uh, happy to do that for you. No obligations, but if we can offer that service, it would be my pleasure, you know, and this kind of a thing. So believe me, I've, I've had success with that approach, selling some really nice timepieces, you know, you know, Vacheron uh, and, uh, and, and other, you know, uh, premier brands that are, are not inexpensive. So. Fantastic. Yeah, Mark, yeah. thank you so much, everyone. This has been Mark Lewis Jones. Uh, we'll put a link to his LinkedIn profile, whatever he likes. Um, thank you so much sure. for your expertise about the the cruise ship industry in the in the 90s uh, in the Latin American market and give us a little recap of uh, CR 2020, which was one of the only watch events uh, to happen this year. Mark, thank you again. And we'll talk to you next time. This has been Superlative. Great. Thanks so much for your time and uh, to be a, a, a guest on your on your podcast, Ariel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? 